From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. Let's start with the uh, with the news of this week. Uh, we saw one day records in coronavirus cases. We've seen uh, we saw a one day record in the number of COVID nineteen deaths. Both of those occurred on Tuesday, and it kind of sets the stage for what we've seen all this past week. Uh, you know, from the governor to school districts to health districts, the continued process and kind of disjointed process of trying to cope with and respond to what seems to be a worsening uh, coronavirus crisis across the state. Yeah, and it is, uh, like we saw, Kevin, like the state put in motion, it's this patchwork uh, of of responses. And depending on where you live and what county you're in or what school district you're in or what public health district you live in, you may be seeing and hearing very different things. And that was kind of the experience for Idahoans this week. Um, it was just kind of all over the map. There is no centralized plan or response or standards. Uh, it is, you know, kind of take it as it comes, depending on uh, maybe what zip code or even what neighborhood you live in, right? Yeah, and, you know, that the stage was set for that to continue on Friday, uh, or a week ago Friday, yeah, when uh, Governor Little held another one of his periodic news conferences about the coronavirus. Uh, took Idaho back to a version of stage two of the reopening. And we say a version because it it really is not what stage two looked like in May. Uh, not at all. Not, not even close. And what it all kind of hinges on in, in Little's view is not closing businesses, not closing schools, and trying to get a handle on the coronavirus largely by cajoling and exhorting Idahoans to avoid gatherings, whether that's uh, a large Thanksgiving gathering or any kind of large social gathering at home where he's he's saying this is where we're seeing a lot of the spread. So it's really not much of a it's certainly not a lockdown in, in that every business in the state remains open. And it's certainly not a lockdown in the sense that uh, the state is going to step in and order schools to to close, uh, although we're starting to see some schools closing. Uh, so it, it really kind of set the stage for what we're seeing. Local school districts are still on the hook to make those decisions. Health districts were all over the place this past week. We we saw some some wild hearings going on at the, the, the health district level. We saw some guidelines coming from the uh, the health district here in Boise. Just again, it's a it's a patchwork. It's a you know there, there's no consistency and. No, no cohesive plan going forward as, again, case numbers just keep on climbing. Yeah, a little bit of a different tone uh, at the press conference last week, uh, the previous week from Governor Little. You know, on the one hand, it is kind of eight months now where we're asking Idahoans uh, to step up and take personal responsibility and modify their behavior. And, and we're counting on that. And that and that personal responsibility approach has gotten us to record numbers of deaths uh, in, in new cases. And so the governor's – oh, go ahead. And, and we heard over and over the governor saying last Friday that he feels like he needs to do a better job of messaging about the need to, to take precautions, to wear masks. I mean he turned it over to a coronavirus uh, patient, turned it over to a nurse talking about the situation. Very 
powerful personalized stories about the coronavirus and the effects of the coronavirus, but we heard the governor over and over saying, I need to do a better job of, of messaging, of getting people to understand. We're eight months into this. I mean, if people haven't heard the message about taking precautions and taking personal responsibility, I'm sorry. If people haven't gotten the message in eight months, I don't know if they'll ever get it. Well, and I mean, that's what, I mean, we're banging our head into the wall, doing the same thing over and over again. And Governor Little said, who could have expected that we would have had numbers this high? Literally, well, I, that any health expert could have told you right. we were heading towards a bad fall and a bad winter. I remember being warned for months that the fall and the winter would be bad as the weather turned, as people moved their activities from outside to inside. Uh, I, I remember being told for months that it would be bad in the fall and the winter. And so I, I, I feel like I knew that. But I, I don't know. It, it, yeah, the governor said that he needs to do a better job with his messaging, but, but nothing really changed. Yeah, he brought out uh, the young patient, the survivor, and that was certainly powerful. But I don't know how, you know, that message is reaching me. I don't know how, <laughs> I don't know how far and wide that message is reaching, considering all you have to do is look at the live comments on the scroll when the governor is speaking to see conspiracy theorists and people telling him that masks don't work, comparing masks to diapers and misspelling the word mask and diaper at the same time. But we're talking about giving the, I mean, this is the response the whole time has been our school districts and health districts will, will make the decision. And as we saw, a public health district turned over the floor uh, to conspiracy theorists shouting nonsense earlier Sorry, this week. The connections between COVID-19 and 5G. And I, that, that's where we are at this point. And, and before we put a bow on the, the <laughs> ongoing debate over the mask mandates, I mean, you know, as the governor took the podium last Friday, I was wondering if we were going to hear a different tone about mask mandates because the governor of Utah had issued a statewide mandate earlier that week. Right. We, we didn't hear a change. And since then, the governor of Iowa has done a statewide mask mandate, reminding us once again that Iowa and Idaho are two separate states. Um, you know, so we're seeing other governors step in and say, you know, it's it's time. We've got to close off this debate. We've got to move past the debate about whether masks work when you know the scientific consensus is pretty clear that masks do make a difference. And you know. The University of Washington has been doing coronavirus modeling for months. It, this is kind of one of the gold standard modeling uh, outfits. It's been cited by the White House. It's been cited by you know, uh, folks on, you know, from all perspectives yeah. in this debate. And their modeling right now for Idaho suggests that we're at just over 800 fatalities as we record here on November 20th, that by March 1st, Idaho is likely to see more than 2,600 COVID-19 deaths. I mean, that's a, a staggering number when you think about it. We're going to triple our death toll between now and March 1st if that modeling holds. That modeling also suggests that if you had universal mask usage, the death toll would come in at about 1,750. Now, that's still awful. That's still doubling the death toll in the span of three months. But that's also, based on the modeling, 900 fewer deaths over the course of 
uh, of three months. I mean, that's that's 900 people. That's, you know, you know, that's significant. Well, it's powerful, powerful stuff. Each one of those numbers is a real person. <clears throat> but again, with, with loved ones who are, you know, who could lose, you know, lose somebody close to them in, in the next couple of months. And this <clears throat> sure. were, to, were to become reality. Absolutely. But, you know, again, we're seeing countless anti-mask rallies around the state. And we're seeing these public health districts who <clears throat> theoretically should be the adults in the room turning over the floor uh, to conspiracy theorists. Uh, and, and so I just don't know. I, I just don't know how we turn the corner here. <clears throat> but I think we should turn the corner and, and look ahead uh, to hope on the horizon or the light at the end of the tunnel or however you want to turn it. Uh, because we have had good news, hopefully, on a vaccine. And, and Kevin, you took a look at Idaho's interim vaccine plan um, and, and tried to take a, make a sense out of, you know, what could happen. Uh, we've heard early results from these vaccines that appears encouraging. They may be seeking emergency authorization to start distribution. But you took a look at how it may work in Idaho. Um, and schools could be impacted potentially early on what are you seeing yeah i mean about the only coronavirus numbers that i'm looking at that, that i think any of us can see right now that look good are some of these early uh trial results that we've seen both from pfizer and moderna both are reporting 94 to 95 percent effectiveness in, in the trial basis and and that that's remarkable i mean you know i go back to what we've heard over the past few months where we're and Dr. Anthony Fauci has talked about, you know, if we could get to 70 percent, that would be really good yeah. for, for an early vaccine. So here we are a few months out. We're smashing past 70 percent effectiveness if this all holds up in, in, in the field. And we're getting potentially vaccines out in, the, you know, out to the population by the end of the calendar year. This is all really remarkable stuff. You know, and as awful as things look right now. What's happening on the vaccine front is, you know, as you know, as encouraging as some of the, the the case numbers and the death numbers are discouraging. So what I wanted to do, with that as a backdrop, is okay. How does this affect education, or how, or how might it affect education? And there's a lot we don't know at this point. You know, theoretically, some Idaho teachers, some Idaho school employees could get vaccines. Maybe even by the end of this calendar year. I mean, it's going to be widespread, but school employees come in pretty high on the priority list for vaccine distribution based on the state's uh, interim vaccine plan. Health workers will get first shot at the vaccine, obviously, for, for very good reasons. So, yeah. we're talking about hospital employees, pharmacists, uh, people who work in long term care facilities. The folks who are on the front line and and god help them i mean you know obviously you know we've got to keep them healthy at all you know and, and make that the top priority but from there you get into this sort of menu of critical you know critical employee employee groups um and that includes school employees it includes firefighters it includes police it includes prison staff it includes daycare employees so you put all of those critical employee groups in, in, in a pot in the next uh, priority list alongside older Idahoans or Idahoans who may have uh, you know, existing health complications that make them more susceptible to COVID-19. So you put all of that 
group, uh, that big group of people in, yeah, in the mix as kind of the second wave of Idahoans who could get the vaccine. So does it start to happen in, with school employees by the end of the calendar year? There's no guarantee. It's theoretically possible. It really depends on how many vaccines get out in the field by the end of this calendar year. And you talked about how, um, I believe it was Pfizer today already filed the paperwork to seek emergency authorization to begin distribution, which if the uh, the feds sign on, that could begin in, in a matter of a few weeks. So maybe by the end of the year, more likely early 2021. That's what we know at this point. Now, that's probably the most concrete stuff that we know. We really don't know what happens with you know, are students going to be able to get the vaccine? What happens at the college and university levels? Uh, I wanted to get a sense of that. Both Boise State and the University of Idaho declined to talk about the vaccine process at this point. They just said it's premature. They don't want to get out ahead of things and speculate. Um, and, and we really don't know, you know, speaking of numbers, we don't really know what the magic number is that would really get a school to herd immunity. And this was probably the most interesting stuff as, as a numbers nerd, but also as somebody who's really curious about you know, how this might play out. Uh, talking to Dr. Uh, Carolyn Bridges, she's a former CDC staffer. She now is a consultant with the Department of Health and Welfare. Um, she's on the coronavirus task force. So she's been dealing with vaccine issues for a quarter of a century. She knows her stuff. And I, I wanted to ask her, okay, um, you know, what does, uh, what gets us to herd immunity? And Dr. Bridges said, you know, it's really hard to tell. You know, and, you know, with the, with the measles, we know that it's so highly contagious, but we also know that we have a highly effective vaccine. So for the measles, she says, look, if you get to, you got to get to about 95% usage to get to herd immunity, because if you're susceptible to the measles, if you're not vaccinated, it'll find you. Whereas with the flu, the flu vaccine changes every year because the flu changes every year. So scientists have to kind of you know, guess out what sort of vaccine will be effective for this year's version and this year's mutation. But the flu isn't as contagious. It, it doesn't spread as readily as the measles. So she said, well, 85% gets you maybe to herd immunity on the flu. Coronavirus, we don't know. And it's impossible to know, but you know, odds are we're not going to get to 95% usage on um, the coronavirus vaccine. You know, based on what we've seen in the schools with, uh, you know, suggested, recommended vaccines. You know, with the percentage of parents who've opted out of vaccines for you know viruses such as the measles, we're probably not going to get to 95% usage, especially if you got scarcity uh, of the vaccines. So. Really hard to tell. Really hard to tell when we get to that that magic number, that magic uh, threshold of herd immunity. So, the, the takeaway I had on the story is, you know, there is some genuine cause for optimism because the vaccines are, are coming faster and appear to be more effective than we could have expected. A lot of uncertainty about the rollout, and you know, like we talked about at the outset with the, the case numbers, with the with the spread that we're seeing around the state. It's going to get worse before it gets better, I'm afraid. I, all the indications point to that. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a good piece if you want to kind of get caught up and dive into it. It's available at the homepage at 
idahoednews.org. But as you talked about just a second ago, and as you brought up in the point that, you know, even when the vaccine arrives, there are some questions and public confidence in the vaccine is going to be one thing. Uh, but Idaho's skepticism, as you mentioned, with vaccines could be another issue. As you pointed out, Idaho has significantly high opt-out rates for vaccine. And I just pulled out my phone here and was scrolling through some news headlines to confirm <clears throat> what I thought I remembered, which was there were some measles cases reported in Idaho, in North Idaho in 2019, mm -hmm. for the first time since 2001. Um, and so obviously there's some skepticism uh, about all things health and welfare and vaccines that's deeply entrenched uh, in parts of Idaho's population. And so I just don't think we know. Um, there are unanswered questions, but it's certainly good news is on the horizon. If you consider a vaccine good news, and if that's something you're looking forward to, uh, and your plan kind of breaks that down. But I Idahoans have been skeptical in the past, and I think that, yeah, I mean, just looking at the anti-mask rallies and some of the things people say and the skepticism about the coronavirus uh, there may be skepticism baked into uh, a vaccine that comes forward. And so I'm going to be really interested in the messaging from local, state, and national leaders uh, if and when the vaccine starts circulating. If, if we're locked into a never-ending debate about masks that we've seen in Idaho over the past few months, we're going to see a very similar debate yeah. about the uh the efficacy of the vaccine. I mean, that's inevitable. I'm sure we're going to have that kind of debate. And I'm sure, you know, the opponents of vaccinations are are not going to, to get a jab. And I, I wonder though, too, I mean, how is that going to affect the accessibility of the vaccine for, you know, not just for teachers, but for the general population? I mean, you know, those who do want a vaccine, will it be a little bit easier to get a vaccine if folks who are, you know, you know, if the anti-vaxxers don't want to get a vaccine, does it make it easier for, for folks who are, you know, receptive to the idea of a vaccine to actually get in and get their, their shots? Because it's going to be a, a, a pair of, of shots with both Pfizer and Moderna. It's uh, it's a two-stage yeah. vaccination. But, you know, getting ahead of ourselves here a little bit, except that, you know, what we've seen with the mask debate, we'll see a similar debate about vaccines. Yeah, so stay tuned. We'll continue to, to keep everybody updated uh, on what the state's response is, um, what we hear about a vaccine, when things could be mobilized, when things start making their way to, to teaching staffs and first responders. So definitely keep an eye out on that. That's going to be a big story and try to share all the information that we get. Uh, one other big story that I want to get to this week, and I know, Kevin, you've been talking about it all week, and you're seriously excited uh, that the legislative session is not much farther off, and and uh, I know how you're excited and you are. I'm happy to be talking about uh, the run-up to the legislature, but it feels like almost an afterthought right now, but some interesting stuff, and, and you were one of the first people writing about it earlier this week. Yeah, um, yeah, it, it is going to convene uh, in early January. I want to say it's January 11th, uh, this year is is when it starts with the state of the state address. Um, but there's a handful of things that take shape between now and then that will really kind of lay out uh, sort of a blueprint for who's going to be in charge and, and where leadership is going to lie. And so um, there's a potentially interesting 
Speaker of the House race going on in Idaho right now. Uh, you've got Idaho's existing Speaker of the House, Scott Bedke, a Republican rancher from Oakley. I want to say that he has been Speaker since before the 2013 legislative session. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's when he unseated Lawrence Denny, who was yeah. then Speaker before he ran for and became Secretary yeah. of State. So I think you're right about the general time frame there, but yeah, uh, eight years as Speaker. Yeah, and he's going to be getting a challenge uh, from Representative Wendy Horman, a Republican uh, from Bonneville County, from Idaho Falls in eastern Idaho. Uh, she's a former school board member. Uh, she initially was involved with the education committees and made a name for herself in the legislature that way. But over the last six years, she's kind of climbed the ranks of the Joint Budget Committee. That's the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee uh, where she, for years, had carried the public school's budget and then became a vice chair on the House side of things um, in the last, uh, I believe, two years ago. Uh, and so she's challenging the speaker. And this is kind of, these leadership races are sort of a secretive kind of cloak and dagger process, right, Kevin? Because there's no official ballots. Uh, the votes uh, take place behind closed doors. Uh, but... These leadership they races, are, but they aren't. I mean, yeah. yes, we don't know. We don't get to cover. We're the, not going to be able to watch the vote take place or count the votes ourselves. Right. No. It. It. So it is. It does all happen in a closed caucus. So it's all kept within the family. So it's not out there for public distribution. We will not be able to tell you in two weeks, you know, beyond who won, you know, how the elections went down. So you know, these are in-house leadership races, but you know. But let's not kid ourselves here. I mean, folks within that room have a pretty good idea of who supported whom. And, and that's where the politics gets uh, gets really sticky. I mean, you know, for, for Wendy Horman, I mean, for, for her to unseat Scott Bedke as speaker, uh, it, it seems to me that what she would have to do is within that caucus of, what are we, 58 now House Republicans because they picked up two? Am I right? 58 uh, Republicans? Let me... Yes. Yeah, they had 56. They have 58 now. Yeah. Right. right. Okay. So you got to get 30 votes uh, essentially to become speaker. The only way I could see her doing this and, and pulling it off is to sort of cobble together all of the House Republicans who maybe feel disaffected. Maybe they feel, you know, they want to change in the speakership. Maybe they feel like they've been, uh, they haven't, you know, been able to advance their issues. They haven't been able to advance their their legislation, they haven't been able to advance their personal position within the caucus because of Speaker Bedke. You know, you got to get all of these sort of, you know, you know, you know disgruntled House members, you know, to, to come together and and support you. I mean, it's the only way you're going to unseat a Speaker. Um, that's kind of what happened eight years ago when when Scott Bedke unseated Lawrence Denny. There were just a number of House Republicans you know, who felt for a variety of reasons that it was time for a change. They felt like, you know, they, they wanted a fresh start in the Speaker's speaker's office. Denny had, you know, had ruffled some feathers along the way. Uh, you know, he had, you know, punished some members of the caucus, uh, you, know, you know, demoted some members of the caucus along the way. He took away some committee chairmanships. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and that, and, and that know, was a big Some thing. enemies along the way. Yeah. So, yeah, that's about the only way I could see Horman 
winning the, the speaker's position. And if you win the speaker's position doing that, you know, you owe something to the 30 or so people who have stuck their necks out and voted to, you know, put you in as a replacement to, to the speaker. So she, if she were to get the speakership, she might be very beholden to some of the more conservative uh, members of the House Republican Caucus who've made no secret of the fact that they're not completely thrilled with Scott Bedke. I mean, you no. know, you don't have to scratch the surface very hard to, to find that, you know, your Heather Scott's and your Priscilla Giddings is, are not big Scott Bedke fans. So does that become the, you know, the building block on which Horman tries to get 30 votes? I, I, it's going to be really interesting to see who, who, winds up prevailing in this race and then what is the political fallout because you know was it two years ago i think it was two years yeah. ago when crane i was just gonna bring this up yeah challenged scott bedke for the speakership and, and you know crane had you know the veteran legislator he had been in house republican leadership at the time he didn't win and lo and behold he got sent to siberia yeah brent crane you know lost a lot of clout along the way he is not yeah. In terms of seniority, uh, Brent Crane would easily be in line to chair a committee at this point, or at least vice chair a committee. He's not doing either. And, you know, you know, you don't have to be, you know, Adrian Monk here to to sleuth out that Brent Crane lost his his status because he took on Scott Bedke and lost. I mean, you know, it's, it's pretty clear. So I don't know what happens if Wendy Horman challenges Scott Bedke and loses. Does she keep her pretty powerful position as a vice chair of the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee? Who knows? You know, you know this is this is a high stakes uh, gamble for for Wendy Horman to take. And yeah, you know, that that JFAC seat and leadership on JFAC is really coveted uh, and really put a lot of time in getting in line. Uh, to be where she is now as vice chair of, of JFAC and has embraced that role with the public school budgets. But yeah, you mentioned Representative Brent Crane, and he's still in the legislature. Uh, in fact, he was just, you know, reelected. But, you know, this is a guy who was in leadership, and there were serious rumors that this is a guy who was going to be running for Congress, and his profile was on the rise. And maybe it still is, but, you know, it's kind of in kind of wandering the woods alone at night in the legislature, as you said, he's he's not in leadership anymore, not chairing a committee, not even vice chairing a committee, just has really two committee assignments, business and state affairs, and so lost a little bit of, of, of his pedestal and platform uh, two years ago. Um, he would probably argue with that conclusion, uh, but regardless, uh, we have seen it before, politics get involved. And, and Representative Horman said she supported a lot of the things that Speaker Bedke has done over the years, uh, but she told me that some of the other members of the House encouraged her to run. She said that potentially she sees a path forward, and, and she by that she means a path forward to winning the speakership. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it's going to be interesting. It's going to take, you know, she's going to have to whip the votes. She's going to have yeah. to get the word out. She's going to have to be on the horn and talking with people. Uh, and, it, and it's not going to be easy. Uh, 
but it, it's fascinating. You need, right. you, you need 30 and you need to be able to tell the folks that you're courting, hey, I think I've got the 30. I think if you if you join my coalition, you will be on the prevailing side because nobody's going to have a whole lot of appetite to be on the losing side of a speaker's election because like 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 I'm saying, you know, they all know or they all have a pretty darn good idea of who supported whom within that room. So you stick your neck out, you go you, you you're part of the you know, the group that's trying to, you know, stage a coup here and the coup is unsuccessful, you know, and Scott Bedke is still speaker, that's not going to help your your status either. So she's got her work cut out for her yeah, in and, the next couple of weeks. And how Bed and if Bedke, let's say if Bedke wins and retains the speakership, how he handles it, you almost wonder if how he handles it is almost a response to the person running against him, which would be Representative Horman this time, versus sending a signal to the next person who would even consider running against him. Hey, here's what you're up against, uh, just so you're ready. But it's fascinating. The Speaker of the House is absolutely lionized, has a ton of clout and power and influence uh, in the legislature, presides over the House on a day-to-day basis, uh, is in line uh, in, in terms of the order of uh, secession to, to be governor, if, if something were to happen there. And, and it's an enormously powerful position. Um, and, and leadership really controls the agenda. And then leadership will also play a role in shaping the committee assignments. There's one other leadership race that I'm going to have my eye on. I believe Melissa Davlin from Idaho Reports, Idaho Public Television, talked about um, House Majority Leader Mike Moyle facing a challenge from longtime House Republican Judy Boyle, right? Yes, uh, Melissa had that story earlier this week that Judy Boyle, uh, member of the House Education Committee, uh, conservative Republican from Midvale, is going to run against Mike Moyle. I mean, that that really kind of was jarring to me, and I kind of, you know, made a, a glib remark about it on, on Twitter, but it's it's true Neither of these two are going to run to the right of each other. I mean, these are two. What's the difference between the two of those? Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, this is like the Idaho Freedom Foundation's version of a soccer friendly. I mean, these two, they, they are ideologically in step with each other. They are, you know, pretty closely aligned with uh, the Idaho Freedom Foundation's uh, legislative agenda. So that's got to be some sort of a, you know, a referendum on leadership style. I mean, that's the only other way I can see it. And I think uh, in 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 her piece, uh, in, in Melissa Dablin's piece, uh, Representative Boyle kind of indicated that that you know there may be a difference in approach that you know you know you know women handle management issues a little bit different than, than men, so there may be a, a difference in tone or approach. But we'll watch that one. I mean, that's, uh, you know, House Majority Leader is a very powerful spot as well. It's not as powerful as Speaker, but it's it's up there. Yep. So we'll see that. And over on the Senate side, we know we're going to get a new Senate president pro tem because Brent Hill did not seek re-election. We know we'll get a new chair of Senate Education Committee because Dean Mortimer did not seek re-election. So there are, you know, big shakeups going on in the Senate just because of you know, who is not returning, who decided not to return in 21. So that leadership session, that organizational session, that comes up the week after Thanksgiving. Yeah. So it comes up two weeks from Ellison, two weeks from now. Yeah. 
is going to be really fascinating to watch. You know, it's going to be interesting politics, it's going to be interesting theater, and it'll give us a lot better sense of what education policy might look like uh, in terms of who's running Senate education, you know, you know, who is going to take a lead role on JFAC in terms of writing education budgets, because it might not be Wendy Horman. If she's a speaker, she won't be on JFAC. Right. And if she loses mm -hmm. her speaker's race, she may not have her, you know, her prime position on JFAC anyway. So who becomes sort of the one of the lead education budget writers in, in 2021? That might change as well. It might not necessarily be Wendy Horman. So a lot to watch for. And, you know, that kind of, you know, that, that's an extended teaser to our next podcast. Yeah. Yeah. If either of those leadership positions change in the House, that's going to be that's going to be big news uh, and it could yeah. affect the session before it even begins. There's also up to two openings on the House Education Committee. Uh, Republican Representative Bill Gosling did not run for reelection. Democratic Representative Chris Abernathy lost. And lost. so there could be some openings on House education, up to two seats maybe. Depending on where things shake out with these leadership races, uh, that could play into that. Um, but it's a good and things always shuffle around. You yeah, know, we see it every every two years with these organizational sessions. There may be a member of House Education who wants to move on to JFAC. We see that happen a lot. Those two committees meet at the same time, so you can't be on yeah, can't House be on Education both. and JFAC. So you, if you're a House member, you have to make a choice between the one or the other. Not so much on the Senate side because they meet at different times of the day. So senators can be on Senate Ed and JFAC, and we, you know, we have seen that we've seen that know, lately we see that uh, repeatedly yeah so it'll be interesting to see how this whole thing shakes out because you, you don't really know until you find out exactly what house members and senators where they really want to land and sometimes they you know they'll give up a committee position for another committee spot you know they'll give up a spot on a committee for the opportunity to be a vice chair of a different committee that meets at the same time or you know there's a lot of there's a lot of horse trading that goes on again behind the scenes so we're gonna be very busy in two weeks trying to sort all of this out yeah horse trading is a good phrase i like that um but anyways that's a good point to leave off because that's exactly the point i think where we will come back to um, yes. We're going to take next week off. I hope everyone has a happy, safe, relaxing, enjoyable Thanksgiving in whatever form that may take uh, this year. I think we're all looking forward to a little bit of a break um, and a chance to hopefully unwind. I say that like acting like I'm going to have a couple days off and we'll, we'll see if that happens or not. But we are probably we're, we're going to take the next week off on the podcast. And so we will be back. Uh, in early December to tell you a little bit about um, legislative leadership races, uh, about the coronavirus, uh, about uh, more decisions uh, with school operations plan. And so we're going to take next week off and we will be back December 4th yes. with our next brand new edition of the Extra Credit Podcast. Right, Kevin? Right. And in the meantime, because uh, that really does kind of set you up for what we'll be talking about in two weeks. In, in the meantime, I want to kind of just quick promote a couple of things on our on our website. There's there's so much more on the website every week yeah. that we can get to. Um, 
Sammy Edge had a remarkable story this week about the number of no-show students, the number of students who were expected to arrive in, in K-12 schools, but didn't. It's more than 11,000 students. She did a she did an outstanding job of breaking down this issue and why it's important and, and why it's happened. So definitely want to carve out some time and read that story. It's well worth it. Our, our Devin Bodkin in Eastern Idaho uh, continues to you know take us on the uh, on the the journey, the personal journey of trying to navigate school and coronavirus with uh, with three young kids. Um, he writes about that every week. Uh, it's a it's a personalized approach. It's a, it's a step away from you know kind of the detached uh, nuts and bolts. These are fun. I, I like Devin's uh, columns and his stories about his family every week. We learn about enjoy. the Vikings every week. It's fun. We didn't know, <laughs> but it's a lot of fun and, and definitely worth your while. He posts that every Sunday night, uh, so keep an eye out for that. Yep, absolutely. Uh, we'll be off next week, back on December 4th. Uh, yeah, I hope everyone stays safe and gets a chance to relax and unwind. Um and celebrate Thanksgiving in whatever form that that takes this year. I know it may be different for a lot of you. It's going to be different for me. But anyways, thanks so much for listening. We always have a lot of fun uh, attempting to break down this ever-complicated intersection of education policy and education politics. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Stay safe and happy Thanksgiving.